If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about creating high quality customers and to help me discuss this topic is Kate Fernandez. Kate is the brand marketing director at Winky Lux, which is a very fast moving creator of luxury, color, cosmetics, and makeup inspired by magic is what they like to say. And I have to say, I actually feel that magic when I go into their stores. I am brand new to this brand and met Kate a couple weeks ago. And I, I just just want to really welcome you to the show, Kate. Thank you for coming. Hi, thank you. I am really excited to be here. And it was great meeting you recently. And, and I'm really excited to be on the show. So tell us a little bit more about the Winky Lux brand, because I know what I experienced in becoming a new convert. But you know, tell me where the name comes from, and maybe a little bit about the background of the brand. It's so funny. We get the question all of the time about the name, and the name really is just made up. It was something that was super fun to say. It was made up by one of our co-founders, Natalie Mackey, who is also our CEO. And we're just all about fun, joy, pops of color, femininity with strength. And I think that that is really related in all of our product packaging um, and all of our branding and content. If you check us out on Instagram, you'll you'll see just a lot of smiling faces, a lot of kittens and, and color. <laughs> I know that's why I like it because you walk into the store and there's this sense of femininity, just like you said, but it's not, it, it doesn't go too far. You, you feel that joy and strength. That's a really tough note to hit. And I think you guys have really hit it well with that brand. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about how did you get into Winky Lux? What's your background? Well, I discovered the brand way back in um, December of 2015. Uh, The brand launched October of 2015. And I fell in love right away. I fell in love with Natalie. Honestly, I had a a little bit of a girl crush on her. I was like, wow, she's so fabulous. She has all these great ideas. So we kind of kept in touch. And then when they were ready to build out their marketing team, they brought me on board along with our performance marketing director, Julia. Um, and I, I've been kind of converted into a Winky Lux babe ever since. So I, yeah, I, I come from more fashion and luxury backgrounds, but having seen the growth in, in the beauty industry it was at the time like 7% year over year growth. I was like, okay, this is definitely the move. And um, frankly, you know, having worked on e-commerce uh, for most of my career, it was exciting to be at a brand that was more accessible. I have a luxury background, so emphasis on luxury, emphasis on a very high price point. So it's just an interesting switch for me to kind of have something that where the average price point is around $16, but still a very luxury feel product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I, I read a stat, uh, I don't remember exactly where I saw it. I think it was 
I think it was on e-consultancy is where I saw it. And, and it was talking about, and it wasn't actually taking into account the last year, but it was saying that um, new retailers like Winky Lux were growing at about 21% year over year and that luxury was flat over the same time period. Is that your experience too? Definitely. That's exactly um, that's exactly the reason why I jumped <laughs> into the beauty industry. And, and, and we are growing so fast. Uh, when I started over a year and a half ago, um, we were only seven people in a room. And now uh, we're about, we're growing at, you know, every month we add another 20 because of our um, experienced store staff. And so right now we're at about 75 employees, if you include the experienced store. Wow. Now, you just mentioned the experience store. So let's talk about that for just a second, because I I think that's a new concept that also comes along with this fresh brand. Um, Tell us a little bit about the experience store and how it plays into our topic of high quality customers. Totally. Um, So the experience stores are, are really, they're very fun. So we opened our first one in Soho in August, August 8th was the exact date. Um, We opened in Atlanta, September 29th, and we're opening Chicago tomorrow. Um, So that's that's a lot of growth. Those are a lot of stores. Um, What we found when we were testing this, um, we tested this at a mall, Roosevelt Field Mall here in the city in New York. Um, And we saw that the people that we were meeting in real life were three times more likely to return to us and be loyal to us on digital. So the experience stores are almost kind of like the feature of acquisition for us. Um, we feel like when when a when a customer comes into the store and they see all of the pink, they see the flowers, they see the packaging, and then they see this curtain, and they're like, "What is behind the curtain?" And we're like, "Well, it's our experience. You know, it's a playland of product themes, our installations, where you know the focus. While it is product themed, the focus is not to sell product. The focus is to give the customer an experience, to give them." you know, a connection to the brand so they really understand the brand. And it's that understanding that drives loyalty. Now, I can say I experienced that aspect of the brand. And what I thought that you do with that experience that was really compelling is, um, one, it's it's six little memes, like you said. It's it's like six bite-sized environments that you walk into. But the environments aren't uh, just any old environment, like I'd walk into something, any random experience. The environment is specifically to help you understand a particular brand and it almost seems like it's an anchor for a particular product line like um, yep. like one might be about skin and another one might be about lip and and different aspects is that right was that is that what it was meant to be yes yeah, so the products that were selected for the, the themes of the room are actually our best sellers and when you normally go through the experience you have what we call our poodle spirit guide and the spirit guide takes you through, explains, you know, this room is dedicated to our flower bomb. Our flower bomb is, you know, our bestseller. It's uh, a favorite of everybody. You know, what it does is it turns the perfect for you pink on contact. Um, and this is like the expression of that. And then the poodle spirit guide takes your pictures, knows all of the best angles, the best lighting. And when you walk out of there, you end up falling in love with one room and you always end up falling in love with the, with the product. So we do find that if they entered the Dream Jelly Room, they didn't know that Winky Lux even had a skincare product to begin with. They now understand that it's loaded with copper, zinc, sulfuric acid for late exfoliation. They understand what it is, and they want to walk out with it. 
So they understand the product better, but at the same time, you're you're putting your best foot forward by putting those products into this you know fabulous, almost Instagrammy experience. Exactly, and then they you know it's free promotion. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, was it specifically designed to introduce new people, or was it designed to stick the landing for people who were kind of already familiar with with Winky Lux? I think it was more designed um, to reach new people. And also to give Winky Lux fans that are already existing an opportunity to get in touch with us in real life. We're a very social-driven brand. We were social media first. So I think we have a lot of fans that are just excited to kind of touch and play with everything in real life. Well, so what's interesting about that experience store is that it seems like it was data-driven perhaps from the beginning. Uh, You said in the very beginning that people in real life were three times more likely to be loyal when they came into the store. Was the experience building off that data? Yes, it definitely was. So one of the, the branding moments that we have is the flower wall. The flower wall has been with us since October of 2015. The day that we launched, we actually launched at Gen Beauty, which is like this big makeup um, trade show of sorts for consumers to come in and meet new brands. And we saw the reaction to the flower wall then. And so we continued to bring it back bigger and better every single time. I mean, the Atlanta and Chicago stores literally have flower caves, right? So it was a lot of social media data that we were looking at. How many posts are we getting from these flower walls? You know, how many people are following us because of the posts? and things like that. And we use a platform called Dash Hudson to gather this type of data. So a lot of times when people are using social data, they're they're confused about how to get quality from social data. How did you use the social data that you were creating from the stores and watching on the Instagram accounts to get signal about the right quality customers and perhaps signal for the brand? So we use a lot of social media data. We use Dash Hudson, so a lot of social hashtags. We use um, our Facebook audience that, you know, we kind of go in, see our emails, see what this audience looks like on Facebook to see, okay, are we getting the right girl? Um, What's interesting about it is that, yes, for the most part, our target demo was coming in, but we were also seeing that women that were a lot older than, you know, the group that we were initially trying to reach, you know, were posting about it. And, uh, you know, they were on Facebook about it. They were hashtagging us, and and that was bringing in some stuff. At the end of the day, social media data is always, like, a tricky, tricky little beast. (laughs) And I always prefer to use the data that comes from our e-commerce platform. And lately, we've been using Castora. So predictive analytics platform is also very important when you're out of stage because it's, like, social media data isn't always enough. Your ESP data is not always enough. And I think the major thing was we did a lot of surveying and focus groups around the experience. We asked a lot of questions. Even if we were there, the, you know, the, the staff was trained to kind of like ask the question, um, you know, what would you like to see is something that's happening right now at the experience store. So at the cash wrap, we have a little note card. Um, and at checkout, the girls will say, hey, um, you know, there's this little note card of the month. Um, we're asking everybody what kind of products they want to see at the Winky Lux store. And then the girls would drop it into the survey um, box and, and send it over to HQ. And then we see that. 
So let's you hit on three really interesting topics and in, in just that one reply. So let me take them one at a time because I, there's so much richness there. I want to draw it out a little bit more. So I, I think what I heard you say is that when you were looking at the social media data that perhaps it was Facebook or another area showed you that there was a broader spread across the demographic uh, that you weren't just looking at. A, I think if the phrase you used is, is that our girl? How did you figure out the how to define who was the Winky Lux girl? Well, I think the company was really born out of a focus group. So we, uh, as Winky Lux, we invited um, women between the ages of 16 and 33 to come in and with their makeup bags, dump them out on the table and kind of talk to us about it. So the common theme was that they really were trendy girls that were on trend. They wanted trends faster than traditional makeup. Um, companies could get, you know, the product to them by. But another theme was they were really unhappy around the products that they could actually afford. You know, they had their treasure pieces like a Charlotte Tilbury lipstick or a Dior mascara, which were more prized and they, they, you know, seemed like they had a glitter in their eye when they were talking about it versus their drugstore makeup. And I can vouch that drugstore makeup is just fine. I use a lot of it. But, you know, they were kind of like defending their drugstore purchases. So like, oh, yeah, you know, I got that mascara because I ran out of this or, you know, oh, that um, I ran out of my Tom Ford lipstick and this was the closest match at the pharmacy or something like that. Does that answer your question? It, it does. But, you know, th- what's interesting in your focus group is the focus group is 16 to 35. But in your answer a few minutes ago, I'm pretty sure I heard you say something about um, women that might be my age. I'm, I'm older than 35 and I'm definitely attracted to the brand. So how did you find that broader spread of people who wanted that joy and, and feminine strength? Totally. So, yeah. So we discovered our target demo in the initial focus group way back in 2015. But now in the past year, it's like we're noticing there are these bloggers that are ageless beauty and they're posting about Winky Lux and they have a very serious cult following. You know, they might be kind of like a 60K influencer, not like over 100K macro influencer status, but those are the groups that are going to be more likely to interact and more likely to push the needle on. So I'm seeing a lot of women in this age group there on social media, on our reviews um, that are powered by Yachtpo, as well as this one time we we went on HSN and we were like, okay, this is either going to be a total bust or it's going to be great. And we ended up selling out in like six minutes. Wow. Like three scoops. So it's just kind of testing and it's really just not ignoring certain groups or or certain demos just because they aren't cookie cutter. Yeah, I I really like that. And I think there was that sense of inclusivity in the store, too, when you walk in and Mm -hmm. you don't like it's a different experience uh, than perhaps most people have experienced in a store. But yet there's this sense of, oh, yeah, I belong because I, I fit these values as opposed to the demographic. Exactly. It's it's value-driven. Got it. Now, you also mentioned Castora, and as you know, we're fans of Castora. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about the predictive side of Castora to look at product sets or to think about um, better ways to find quality customers or reach out to quality customers? We're so happy that we jumped on (laughs) Castora. I think we've reached a point, and I think I mentioned this earlier, where the data that we were getting from our email service provider, from our e-commerce platform, from our social media analytic tool, 
it just wasn't rich enough for us to kind of make the decisions that we wanted to make and really flush out things like our email marketing strategy. Um, so we're, we're looking at the data on customers, specifically lifetime value data. Um, and for, I was, we were going to kill a product. We were going to kill um, our glossy boss, which is a very good gloss, but it's underwhelming in that it's, it's a gloss, you know, there are a lot of different glosses out there. Um, so we were like, oh, you know, maybe we should just kill this too. We see the data on Custor, and it ends up that while the gloss doesn't seem like one of our best sellers, it actually has the highest lifetime value attached to it. And we ended up now we're slating a few shade extensions for next year. So that kind of helped us in our product strategy. Same thing with, you know, our unibrow. We were worried about the unibrow. Unibrows, um, it's a universal eyebrow pencil. So the unibrow is a, is a funny name. But we were worried it's one of those products that when a woman chooses her eyebrow pencil, it's sticky. You know, she's going to go back to that eyebrow pencil because she knows that it works. And products like that are slow on the uptake in the beginning because, you know, you really have to convince the girl or the man, you know, I don't judge, whether or not they should be using this. And then once they have it in their hand, the hope is that they become returning customers. And we see with Castor that that's the case. So now we're definitely thinking about making second version that might be like a micro um, based on some reviews that we've had and the data that we found on Castor. So let's talk about that a minute because I, I want to make sure people understand when you say lifetime lifetime value, you're not talking about the lifetime value of the product or the, the product volume sales, as we talk about on the show quite a lot. We talk about customer lifetime value. So what you are seeing is that people buying a certain product had a longer life, had a higher lifetime value spend, or perhaps um, an interesting trend line that made you say, hey, we don't want to kill that product because that's just going to, it's actually called the product death spiral. Uh, there's a there's a great example from um, that Pete Fader uses in his Wharton classes, and I don't know if it came from there originally, but his example goes something like this, like a grocery store sees that they have a certain spread of products and some are making money and some aren't they start cutting out the ones that aren't making money but as a result the sales spiral down and down and down because people who are valuable customers when you change the lens that were buying let's say beer and diapers um, were suddenly not able to get the beer so they don't buy the diapers so you invoke this spiral exactly yeah, totally. Yeah, so so here you're looking at customer lifetime value. Was it hard to figure out where to cut that line? In other words, there might be a group that is very clear, high-value customers, and then there's kind of this middle gray area. Did you have to wrestle with that at all? Oh, definitely. So using the, the data on Castora, we were able to identify who our low-value customers were and figure out the strategic email marketing strategy where we gave certain discounts and there was certain messaging and language that we used to kind of motivate purchase and, and it's been working. So it's always great to use this kind of data to make emails work for you as opposed to constantly being reactive and like sending the same message. And I'm so pleased to hear you say that you don't ignore the low value customers. Um, can you tell us any more about the strategy around low value customers? Because the traditional way to go about it is, 
I've got these high value customers and I'm going to go hammer my high value customers to buy more, which as we know on this show is exactly the wrong strategy. But you're also making an effort to really understand those low value customers. How have you been reaching out to them or looking at them to help create quality? Totally. I mean, like I mentioned, email marketing, a lot of personalization for the group, be it the weather is, you know, if it's a gloomy day in New York, maybe we want to send them like a little pick me up um, to the New York area low value customers that might be, you know, I mean, obviously, like your high value customers, they're always going to shop. They're obviously shopping. We still want to give them some love, but the low value customers could potentially become high value customers if you just give them a little extra attention. So we're doing that um, by email marketing. We're doing that by updating the site and the way that, well, we're working on that piece, but figuring out how to make the site look different for low value customers, things like that. And and are you thinking about changing, like if I came to the site and I was a different value tier, would I get a different site experience? Is that something you're thinking about? We're thinking about it. I mean, right, we're we're still really young, so um, we're ambitious. <laughs> and we can we can get that going, but I think that's a dream that could become a reality. And I, I know some companies are already kind of doing that outside of the beauty space. You told me another story that was uh, interesting when we were talking earlier about the mascara, and it seemed like that was uh, similar to the gloss story, but it, what was interesting to me about the mascara was it, it almost seemed like it was um, maybe reaching to the middle value customers and helping them move up. Did I remember that right? Or maybe you could tell us that story too. So launching the mascara, again, it's kind of the same the same situation as with the unibrow. When someone has a mascara that they like, it's much harder to get them to try a new mascara, especially when you're on digital. I mean, you can't try the mascara in real real life. Like, you don't really know what it looks like. We didn't move into a sampling strategy for the mascara. We decided not to move forward with a sampling strategy. So how could we kind of get in in front of people in a way that will drive them to try the mascara? We paired it with Peeper Perfect. So Peeper Perfect is an amazing under-eye concealer. It can be used in other areas of the face, but it has a little bit of an orange undertone that cancels out dark circles under your eyes. And it is already a sticky product, but we've really sold people on it. They're obsessed with it. People love it. If we ever sell out, you know, they hunt us down and they, they wait and they're just like, please get it, give it to me. So we kind of paired it for a day with the mascara because it's, you know, you get like your bright, sparkly eye, like you don't look tired, your mascara opens up your eyes, blah, blah. And it was a perfect pairing. Normally, we wouldn't have paired those two things together because those are two things that are kind of like the hard sell. But knowing that the people perfect does so well, knowing that um, from the data on Castora, we're seeing that it has a really high LTV attached to it. We're like, okay, let's try it. And it, it worked. That's perfect. And what a great strategy, because I think in luxury retail, and correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe in traditional retail, the strategy is more of somebody's gut feel. Um, You know, hey, we've got a lot of products here, but we don't have a lot of products there. So maybe if we slam these two together, we'll get some lift. Is that generally how it would work outside of the Castora system? Totally. Yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. (laughs) We do that all the time. Um, we're constantly testing, always be testing um, with something that Natalie actually told me during my interview process was kind of the winky way, ABT, always be testing. So um, we do a lot of gut stuff, but we're trying to get better at using this type of data and this type of thinking because we think this is really 
how we're going to kind of propel ourselves into the next level. Right, right. Now, a lot of companies struggle with the ability to get, you know, so they get that insight, they get that, you know, hey, this is really what we should be doing. And then they have a hard time operationalizing it. So pushing it into the system. Do you think that it's just the DNA of Winky Lux that you're moving fast, you're a fast brand, so everything moves along in marketing faster than it might move at a traditional company? Or is there some special way that you get people on board to try the test? I think that it really is a cultural thing at Winky Lux. We're fast and furious. And and I think that from an outsider's perspective, I think that it's extremely impressive and very scary. I think to the newbies, when they come in, they're like, wow, something <laughs> near fire. And I definitely felt that way. So um, I think it's just something that isn't everybody, you know, our hiring process is, you know, we vet everybody. I mean, everybody that's, you know, during the interview process, but we seem to find talent that is able to keep up with the pace. Mm-hmm. People who are kind of built to be racehorses in the first place. Yeah, we have a lot of hybrids. We have a lot of people that wear many hats and that like to wear many hats because not everybody is built for a startup environment. But it's that agility that I think is the reason why we were able to grow so quickly. That's something I'm sure a lot of companies envy. But you know, let's, um, let's summarize a little bit. Let's say that I'm convinced and I want to try to grow high-quality customers for my brand. Where should I begin? What should I do first, second, or third? Because there's a lot of goodness in what we've been talking about. You know, how, how could I begin? You know, I, I think I mentioned this a little earlier. Everybody knows their target demo. You know, very early on, you know what your target demo is, and that should always be the focus. But you shouldn't ignore smaller segments that could potentially have, you know, the higher LTV value. Uh, I think that sometimes companies can be so hyper-focused on just that one group that they're missing all of these opportunities to kind of top the funnel. I really like what you're saying there because I think people get hung up on volume as opposed to quality. And Mm -hmm. really what you're seeing in those smaller segments is quality. And I I think you told me another story at one point um, where you had a major brand post you and you were looking at the progress of that versus a smaller brand, which kind of echoes your point about the segment, right? So larger brands had about 16 million followers on Instagram and we're, we were so excited to be posted. We were like, okay, this is going to be great. It's going to drive a lot of new followers and new eyeballs. And we ended up actually seeing that it didn't really result in that. I mean, it was decent, but it wasn't great. It didn't drive any revenue for us. It actually made it worse. It was a bad day. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then when we posted a much smaller brand, uh, you know, we saw way more from that in our Dash Hudson analytics tool. Another another example of this is I handle brand partnerships here at Winky Lux and we do a lot of these sample drops. We had a brand that had a very closely matched demo. It was this girl is definitely going to want Winky Lux. What we do when we do a sample drop is we swap samples and include either a buyback card or an email that kind of leads the the client on the on the other brand side to our site. So when we did this with them, it didn't really perform. And we, we couldn't understand why it didn't perform. We're like, this girl is winky. Um, then, you know, a couple months down the line, we did the same thing with another partner. The demo didn't seem to be the perfect fit, but it was a different girl who still had some similar interests, a little older than what we thought we should be doing. And that outperformed the other brand partnership tremendously. 
<clears throat> and it was great because now we have this different girl and now we have this new girl and it's a new segment to kind of explore and, and figure out. And now I'm running a couple different partnerships that have similar demos to the more successful sample drop campaign. That's fantastic. Did you get data back from your partners or were you just looking at your own data coming in? How did you know it was really successful? We swapped data. So at the end, you know, we'll always kind of have a call in our meeting where we go over performance, the sales, the engagement, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fantastic. And that really makes the point about the target demographic and, and not ignoring those smaller segments because of the, the need to look at quality versus volume. What else should I do if I'm trying to get started? I mean, obviously, it's all about data, but I think that really focus groups, I mean, we were literally born out of a focus group. I think focus groups are very important, surveying purchasers and non-purchasers alike. Surveying non-purchasers actually helps us drive some revenue. We, we offered a discount if they completed the survey, and it was a very long survey, and they, people had never purchased Wingulux before, but we had an 85% completion rate Wow! because they wanted that discount. So it was a group that we were able to tap into um, to kind of understand why, you know, why aren't you buying from us? And then I think that a, a survey strategy is very important. Mm-hmm. And and I think it really captures that voice of customer, which so many people tend to miss. I mean, we, we get very focused on data, 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 but then there can be confounding factors in the data that you can't sort out unless you have the customer voice. And I've seen this much more proactively in the retail space where you're willing to pick up the phone and call the customer or start to understand why. And it seems like you're getting some of that depth from the survey data. Definitely. Do you plan to keep in touch with the customers in such a way that you're able to constantly keep a tab on that voice? Or do you use social media to really keep a tab on what your customer is wanting and what they're up to? How do you how do you sort out the voice? So we have several um, different surveying initiatives that go on at the same time. So we have, you know, our brand ambassador program is our very age group of micro-influencers and, and, you know, the everyday girl that are obsessed with Winky Lux. And so we ask them a lot of questions and we do this about once a month where either we bring them in to a focus group in real life or we choose, you know, the top 25 most active And then we'll also send product out uh, along with questionnaires so that they can kind of give us their feedback and let us know how they felt, what they think about the formula, things like that. But then there's also this other piece of um, that we're kind of tackling right now, which is sororities. We're kind of having a separate survey strategy there. And we'll be doing a little more with folks that don't know the brand for, you know, we're still very young as a brand, only three years old. So we're now coming into the stage where we're like, okay, like we really need to increase our brand awareness even more, our brand equity. How do we do that? It's going to be surveying and, and having focus groups with people that don't know the brand and have never seen the brand. You know, that whole point you just made about increasing the brand equity, I think that's incredibly important because we often talk about customer equity, but the whole point about reaching non-purchasers is tied to brand equity and what does the brand stand for and do people know about it and are you reaching them correctly? Uh, it's it's almost mm-hmm. like that step before we get to customer equity. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd recommend people do before that, you know, as they try to step into this space? not to ignore the importance of content and branding. Um, I see this all the time. If, if branding isn't a priority in the very early stages, it causes a lot of messiness. So Natalie Mackey, our, our co-founder, again, she is 
a total brand first person. Basically, Winky Bucks is her, is her aesthetic, is her universe, her mind. And I think it's that branding that made us so successful so early on and not kind of nailing that down as you are in like the initial stages and, and trying to figure out who this target demo is and who are the, you know, the, the sub demos that you should be looking at. If you don't have a personality, you, you can't really follow through and you can't really get the right people. And, and I think that's what uh, attracts people to the brand too, is it's, it's like, you know who you are and it's perhaps, like you said, the brand expressed through her, through the personality. That's, um, that's something that is uh, maybe unique to startups because you're so close as a team, but it's also, I think, criti- critically important at the very beginning, right, is, is to have that sense of who you are. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kate, if people want to reach you or get in touch, is there a way that they can uh, contact you? So it's just Kate at winkylux.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or or if you just want to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, if they happen to be in New York City, where can they check out the Experience Store? Yeah, so our experience store is located in Soho. It's 430 West Broadway, and it's a a really nice street, so I highly recommend. It's a great walking neighborhood. Yeah, it is a beautiful neighborhood, and we will cross-link to that in the show notes, too, just so people can easily pull it up on Google Maps and find it. So I really want to thank you for being with us today, Kate. As always, um, links to everything we discuss, the Winky Lux website and the store and anything else we've talked about will appear at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Um, Kate, it's been wonderful having you on the show and hearing about the strategies that your young company is bringing forward and really revolutionizing the whole way that we talk to people and reach, to, reach out to people. Thank you for sharing those. Thank you for having me. Remember, everyone, as you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic, just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.